How's everybody doing? Good, good, yeah. Uh, hey, I, I, I try to do it every week. I'm, I'm sure I forget sometimes. I want to tell you guys just, uh, and we mean this genuinely, really, really appreciate you guys being here. I, I tell the Saturday night crowd all the time just how much I appreciate them. If you think that parking lot is hard to navigate during the day, it's exceptionally hard at night. So uh, I just appreciate you guys. It should be done by the end of the month. Um, so it should be done by the end of the month, and it'll be, uh, it'll be really, really nice. I was joking around last night. I think me and the, and the parking team crew are going to get a bunch of that, like, fake champagne you buy at Kroger and just, like, shake it up and shoot it all over each other and, like, you know, drink it and pour it on our heads and, and roll around on the pavement. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're welcome to join me in that. We're going to take pictures of it, and uh, I'm going to post it all over Instagram. So... Um, you think I'm joking, and you're going to be going through your, you're going to be going through your feed one day, and you're like, oh, there he is. Uh, so thank you guys. Uh, another an, another cool thing. Um, last week we took a break from Hebrews for uh, the four services after our worship night. We did our baptism service, which, by the way, thank you for coming to that. Um, I think we baptized a little over 60 people, uh, which was really good for one weekend. Yeah, it's not bad. And um, considering we do three of those, we'll do three of those this year. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good start. And um, a lot of just really cool baptisms. My friend Cole has baptized uh, all three of his kids, and uh, it's just really neat to see that. And, and it's, uh, it's fun. And so thank you for coming out and celebrating that with us. If you haven't been with us, um, we're in the book of Hebrews. This is in the New Testament. It's right before the book of James. Uh, so far, it's been really, really good. What it's done so far is it's laid down a lot of the foundation of the groundworks of what the Christian faith is. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who the recipients of Hebrews were. We can assume it was a Jewish congregation somewhere, hence the name Hebrews, and it actually alludes to a lot of Jewish culture and a lot of Jewish things we'll talk about today. And so we can assume it was Jewish people, but these people were strained from their faith, some of them leaving their faith to go back to, to, to either Judaism or, or just to not believing in Christ at, at all. And so this author is laying down the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, chapters one and two talk about the superiority of Jesus, uh, superior over prophets, superior over angels. And chapter three is going to say that Jesus is superior over the great leader Moses. And so to us, that seems pretty common sense, but to this crowd, it was, uh, it was not. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we talked about that Jesus is superior because he lowered himself from heaven in order to save humanity in order to help humanity. And he suffered temptations and he suffered death and he suffered all these other things. And Jesus did that so he could sympathize with humanity and help us. So when we're tempted, Jesus can say, I was also tempted. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can beat temptation. And so we have all this help from Jesus Christ because of what he did. So this week we're gonna talk about this and put a little precursor on this before I get into this. Um, it's just, it's kind of an offensive lesson, not because I want to be offensive, and it's not offensive to non-believers, it's going to be offensive to, to believers. And it's essentially this, that how we live, not what we say, is the evidence of our belief. How we live, not simply what we say, is the evidence if we are a follower of Jesus or not. And I hope to give you ample evidence today to show that this is the case. It's not what we say, um, it's what we do, all right? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the Red Sea? Uh, so let me, let me pray. We're going to jump into Hebrews. You should have got a note sheet when you walked in. It has pretty much everything I'm going to say on it. It doesn't have everything, but, but pretty much the important stuff, it's all on there. And uh, I'm going to do my best to break chapter three down. It's a dense chapter. It's short, 
but it's dense, okay? So be patient with me, all right? Uh, let me pray. I'll get into this, and um, I hope it blesses you today. I hope it's good for you, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I just want to tell you thank you. I want to thank you for everyone in this room, God. I want to thank you, Lord, that you brought us all together, Lord, that we can hear your word, that we can worship together. And, and uh, God, if there's any unbelievers in this room, I pray that you just start to speak to their heart, God. And if they're here uh, because they want to find the truth, Lord, I pray that you start to show them the truth. God, if there are people in this room who, who believe in you and they claim to follow you, Lord, but maybe they're not living to the potential that they should or maybe they're not doing the things that they should, maybe there's sin in their heart that they haven't asked for forgiveness for, God, I pray that you convict us today. Lord, we also want to pray for every church in our city, smaller ones, bigger ones, every church in our city. God, we want to pray that your kingdom advances through them and through their leadership and through their congregations, Lord. Lord, we love you, God, and we thank you, God. Keep your hand on me as I teach your word and Help me to teach it with love and to teach it with accuracy. Lord, we love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, chapter 3 of Hebrews, New Testament, right before the book of James. I'm in chapter 3. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll do my best to, to explain it, okay? Here we go. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one that appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. So Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are in that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. So like I said earlier, the author of this book of the Bible has been setting up that Jesus is superior to prophets, to angels, and if you were a Jew, this would be a big deal also to Moses. There was no one more respected by the Jewish people than Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He delivered the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, to the people. He was a fantastic leader. He led millions of people out of captivity into the promised land. The, the most regarded Jew that's ever lived probably is Moses. Moses or probably King David, but Moses is at the top of their list, a great leader and a great example. And this author was saying Jesus is even greater than him. He's superior to Moses because Jesus fulfilled the plan of God. The author of Hebrews calls the leaders brothers and companions. Essentially what he's saying is, is there is this play and we have been invited to be a part of the plot, a part of this drama that is going on that is mankind. We've been invited into this. And now that's a big deal. And Jesus is the director of this play. He's the one in charge of all of it. So we're brothers, we're companions, we're participants in this divine plan, but it is Jesus, he is the one that's gonna make sure that divine plan plays out the way God wants it to play out. He's, our, uh, he's God's representative and he's the apostle that completes God's mission. So therefore he is superior to Moses. This is a deep one. He's also the example for us. Now, if you want to know what, what God would do in our shoes, how would God respond to the government? How would God respond to persecution? How would God respond to people hating him? How would God respond to that? All you have to do is read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see God came to earth as Jesus Christ lived for 33 years, and we saw what Jesus would do in our shoes. 
So not only was Jesus the perfect revelation of who Jesus or who God is, he's also the perfect revelation of how to respond to God. If you want to know how to pray, look at how Jesus prayed. He's very straightforward. He said, hey, pray like this, that we should probably pray like that. And so he's very straightforward on how to handle all these things, how to respond to the, to, to the Father and how to rela- have a relationship with the Father. And so how we should respond to God the Father through hardship and through confusion, we are given that example by Jesus. So Moses was faithful with God's household, the Jews. Jesus is faithful with everything, all people, all things. And so God uh, has made Jesus superior to Moses. Jesus is also the builder of God's house. Verse 1 and 2 show the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Verse 3 takes a different turn. It shows the differences of Jesus and Moses. Moses led the house of Israel, but he was also a part of it, right? He was a Jew just like the rest of them. He was a part of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus was the creator of the Jewish people and all people. So obviously, he's greater than that. Obviously, he, he, it, since he created the house, it says that the one that builds the house deserves more honor than the house itself. That's not a hard thing to wrap your brain around, but it's a reminder that the creation is never as good or as great as the creator, that it is always greater. And so the crowd is reminded of this. And the reason why the author brought this up is that the Jewish people, and I'm not picking on the Jewish people because I'm gonna turn it on us here in a second, they tended to give excessive respect to their leaders, excessive respect. Now, I believe in authority, I believe in showing respect to people above me. I believe that uh, it is the Christian's obligation to respect whatever government is in power, to pray for them and to obey the laws of the land. I believe in all that. And though we are to respect authority, we as believers must never forget where authority comes from. So to be a good Christian, we, we uphold Romans chapter 13, which means whoever gets elected in November, whether you like them or not, God himself has called us to respect those individuals. But we must also keep those people in power in check and also remind them that any authority given to them, according to the Bible, is given to them by God. And we have become a culture that has created idols in sports, in music, in politics, in business, and all these other things. And again, last time I'll say it, we need to remember where true authority comes from. It always comes from God. So another reason why Jesus is superior is that he's the ruler over this house. Now, Moses was a wonderful leader. A great, you gotta be a good leader to lead millions of people through the desert for 40 years. Great leader. Uh, but Jesus was the ultimate leader because he willingly lowered himself, the creator of mankind, lowered himself to serve mankind. And Moses' whole job, especially in writing the first five books of the Bible, was to focus on the coming Messiah, to focus on Jesus' coming. So Moses had a revelation of God. I don't know if you know this or not. Moses wasn't there when the earth was created. So Genesis 1 and 2 is a revelation. It was a vision shown to Moses by God. And he wrote this down, much like the book of Revelation was shown to John. And so he received a revelation of God, but Jesus was the revelation of God. Jesus was God incarnate, and he was the ultimate revelation of how God operates and how he does things. The Jews also thought they tried to reduce Jesus down to maybe he's just a second Moses. Maybe he's just kind of a a reincarnated Moses. Maybe he's just another good leader. Now, there's two reasons why Jesus is not the second Moses. One, 
Moses was a fantastic leader, but Jesus was the son of God, not just a called leader. And when we are sons and daughters of a king, sons and daughters of the boss, there's a whole nother level of responsibility placed on us. So Jesus being the son of God carried much more weight than just a called leader of God. Second, Jesus stood over God's house, the people of God, and Moses was simply in that house. So again, there's multiple layers and there's multiple evidence that Jesus is superior. And so all this talk about God's house, right? That Jesus is over God's house. Verse six says that we get to be a part of that house. We get to be uh, bricks in the mortar of this house that is the house of God. We get to be a part of that, but there's a conditional statement here. And we don't like conditional sentences because that means that we have a, a, a certain level of responsibility. And what it says though in verse six is that we get to be a part of the house of God if, if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. What that shows is this, and we're gonna get into this a lot more in later parts of this chapter. We prove the genuineness of our faith by our endurance and by our commitment to the principles and commands of Jesus. This is what the author of James said. I use this a lot because we need to hear it a lot. He said this, in the same way, if faith does not have works, it is dead by itself. Some people will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. What James was saying is this, you can tell me you're a Christian all day long. I will show you I'm a Christian by how I live my life. That's what James was saying. You can get the tattoo, you can get the bumper sticker, you can wear the shirt, you can go to a building, you can put on a suit, you can do all those things. I will show you though I'm a Christian by how I treat my neighbor. I will show you I'm a Christian by how I serve my community, by how I worship the Lord, by how I keep the standards and commands of Jesus Christ. I won't just tell you I follow Jesus. It will be obvious in the way I walk that I follow Jesus. Next part. Therefore, the author says, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, this is God speaking, tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger that they will never enter in to my rest. So what the author wanted to do, he quotes the book of Psalms. The, the author of Hebrews loved the book of Psalms, quotes it a lot. So he quotes the book of Psalms. And the reason why he quotes it right here is he wants them to remember the past and to learn from the past mistakes. Now, if you don't know, the Jewish people were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, right? Over there, they were treated horribly. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses comes along, liberates them, of course, by the power of God, liberates them from Egypt. They go through the wilderness for 40 years to get to the promised land. Now, the story of the Exodus, that's what that's called. The book of Exodus is about that. The story of the Exodus is used as an example to us today to not go back to the things that held us in slavery so that we are, we've been liberated by God and we are not to go back to quote unquote Egypt and we're not to take our freedom for granted. So the author of Hebrews wanted to remind the readers about this. So again, he quotes Psalms. And this quote that I just read from Psalms 95 
would remind the Jewish people about the Exodus. It would remind them about the book of Numbers that, that uh, Moses also wrote. It talks about the rebellion that the Jewish people had and the consequences of that rebellion. And what he says is interesting and you can miss it easily. He says, the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes the Bible. What that shows us is every single word of this text was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That essentially the author of the Bible is not a group of men. Essentially the author of the Bible is God. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to shake us up and warn us. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Don't do what other people have done. Learn from that. Learn from that. And if we neglect that, if we read the things of the past, if we read the word of God and we neglect those warnings, what happens is over time, our heart becomes hardened. And as we reject the instruction and as we reject the call of God, our constant response of resistance Listen, if we constantly resist, that leads to habits of disobedience. And if we're not careful, that eventually leads to the judgment of God. Rebellion leads to disobedience, leads to judgment by God. And God is gracious with us. It's not that we do one, something one or two times and God's like, nope, done with you. He's extremely gracious. But after consistent rejection, what it says in Romans, and this may be one of the scariest uh, passages in the entire Bible, that if we consistently deny him, he gives us over to the mindset that we want, that he gives us over to our desires, that over time, God says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll give you over to that. And that's a very, very scary thought. So this was the case for the first generation of Jews that came out of Egypt. I don't know if you know the story or not, but they wandered around in the desert for 40 years and the first generation that was liberated from Egypt never saw the promised land. For 40 years, the attitude of the liberated Jews was rebellion and God was slow to anger. But what had happened is the people became entitled and selfish. God owed them something. And this repetition of rebellion led to their hearts being hard. Now the recipients of Hebrews, the people who received this letter, we're about 40 years removed from Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It's an interesting coincidence, isn't it? The Jews were 40 years removed from their liberation. The people who received this letter were about 40 years removed from their liberation. Just an odd coincidence that I wanted to bring up. And so the question is answered here. Does God get mad? If you've ever read the, the, the Old Testament, there are several times that God got really, really mad, right? If you read about some of the interactions between Moses and God, I find them humorous. Uh, there'd be sometimes Moses would go up on Mount Sinai and he's like, God, can you blow all these people up? And God's like, Moses, you know, chill out. I'm, I'm improvising here a little bit. And there'd be other times that Moses would go up on the mountain and God's like, I'm going to blow all of them up. And Moses is like, go, please don't. And they would talk to each other. And it's just interesting though, to see this, God gets mad sometimes, but God's anger does not look like our anger. And the fact that God's anger is always justified. When God gets mad, there's a good reason. And when he gets mad, you know that it's taken a long time for him to reach that place. God doesn't get mad quickly. He doesn't get, uh, and, and when he does get angry, he tempers that anger with justice and with love. And so the two things that did make God angry with the Jews that came out of Egypt, the first one is this, they habitually disobeyed. It wasn't just a one-time fluke. Oh, I looked at pornography that one time. It was this every single day thing, this constant disobedience of doing things that upset God. And then the other thing that made God angry was they didn't care to learn the truth. 
They didn't care, I'm using modern day analogies, they didn't care to crack open the Bible and see what God wanted or didn't want. They didn't even care to know what was right or wrong. And when you combine those things, something very, very bad happens. Ignorance to the ways of God is not an excuse for perpetual disobedience. Do you know what the most available book in North America is? The Bible. You can get it in hot pink and camouflage and 45 different translations, a women's one, a men's one, a youth one, a children's one, whatever you want in all these different versions. And so if one is looking for the truth, if one really wants to know the answer, you can find it through the Word of God. You can find it at church when, when leaders are teaching the Word of God. You can find it uh, through personal conviction. Even if you don't know the answer, I believe if you genuinely pray to God, God, is this right or wrong, that he will convict our heart and he will show us. And God swore to the Jewish people, if you refuse to learn, if you choose to be ignorant and choose to be rebellious, I'm not going to give you the promised land. The same thing goes for us, guys. If we willingly choose to be ignorant to the word of God and to the instruction of God, we will not receive our promised land. We will not receive heaven. And what we tend to do is we tend to hate the process. This is something that I struggle with a lot. Man, I can't wait to get into the other side. I can't wait to have a beautiful parking lot. I do not like the process in between. I hate it. And, and on a greater scale, whenever we approach God and we're like, God, I want to be a great leader. Okay, if you want to come out like pure gold, that means I have to really turn up the heat on you. That means I have to put the fire on you. That means you have to go through a process. And the Jewish people hated Moses because Moses took them through the wilderness. Listen, look at the metaphor. The only way to get to the promised land is to walk through a desert. And it's like that for every single one of you. The only way to be what God wants you to be is you have to walk through the wilderness sometimes. And what they had forgot is they had forgotten that God had set them free. So Moses walks up to the Red Sea, right? The Egyptian army's right behind him. Moses takes his staff, plucks it into the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts and the ground was dry and they walked across it, went to the other side. The water kills all the Egyptian army that's coming after them. And then immediately after that, the Jewish people are like, I don't know if God's looking out for us. That's what happened. And we laugh at it. How many Red Seas has God parted for you and I? How many things has he done for us? And if we're not careful, modern day Christians, that's us guys, fall into the same selfish and myopic, that means we can only see things right in front of our face. We fall into that mindset and we start to despise the refinement that God is doing with us. We want to be pure gold, but we don't want the heat turned up. We want to be great business owners and we want to be great teachers, but we don't want to go to school. We don't want to be educated. We don't want to work hard. We don't want to mop the floor. We refuse to go through the process. And if you talk to any great leader, business owner, educator, CEO, whatever you, pastor, talk to any great mother, talk to any great father, none of them have achieved that title or that success through ease. Let me show you what the scripture says. Man, this is one that you guys should really, really mark or circle or write down or something. This is a good one. It says this, we rejoice in our afflictions. Here's the important part. Because affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If you want to be a person of character, you have to go through afflictions. 
If you want to produce hope, that means you have to have endurance. These things happen. Whenever the junk hits the fan in your life, who do you run to? Someone that's had everything handed to them and no adversity in their life? Of course not. If you want to make it and if you want encouragement, you go to someone that's seen the junk hit the fan and they made it. They made it through the other side and you ask them, how did you do that? How did you do that? Because affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And it says, this kind of hope will not disappoint you. It will not disappoint you. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that that happens, okay? I keep getting like more and more preachy as this lesson goes on. Got two more parts and I'll be done. He says, watch out brothers, so that there won't be any of you, there won't be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily where it is still called today so that none of you are hardened by sin's deception. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Almost the same thing he said at the last part, or the first part that I read. And what this does is now we have the age-old question. The question that has caused denominations to split, it's caused churches to split, it's caused, caused numerous arguments. The question of, can we walk away from Jesus? Can we choose to walk away from Jesus? Now, the debate over the verses that I just read are this. One, is this talking about the fact that we are eternally saved, or is this talking about our sanctification? If you've never heard that term, when we're saved, that's when we repent and give our life to Jesus, right? We're saved. Sanctification is that lifelong process of us looking more and more like Jesus until he comes back. That's essentially what sanctification is. The other question is, was the recipient of these letters, were they Christians or non-Christians? Without a doubt, they're Christians. They were Christians that were receiving this. So the question still remains, if one is a Christian, can you walk away from Jesus? Now, let's talk about that a little bit. The first thing we need to know is this. The evidence of true Christian faith is is that there are actions behind it. The readers of Hebrews are instructed to show their faith by enduring temptations and refusing to let sin and the deception of sin harden their hearts. So some would ask the question, and there are, I bet, a lot of you in this room, if you grew up in church, some would say, if one was a Christian and they walked away from the faith, They were never a Christian in the first place. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Quite frankly, I don't care. I think it's a very distracting argument. The reason why I think it's a distraction, if you're married in here, if you're married in here, and if you're constantly asking if you can get divorced, your heart's in the wrong place. If you're married and your conversations and your debates with people are constantly revolving around, I don't know, can I leave my wife? I think I can. I don't think I can lose, leave my wife. If the people who argued about if we can or cannot walk away from Jesus would instead use that energy to just grow closer to him, we'd probably have a lot more Christians walking around. We'd probably be doing a lot more in our city. The point is, is that we continually grow in our relationship with Jesus. If we're constantly throwing around, can I get divorced from God? Our marriage with him probably isn't as healthy as we think it is. So when he says brothers, the author of this book, He calls them all brothers. That wasn't all inclusive. That doesn't mean that everyone that goes to church is saved. He knew that people who were receiving this letter, some of them were not genuine in their faith. And each of them needed to prove their genuineness or their authenticity by refusing to deny their faith. 
and by keeping up with the commands of Christ. But this commitment was threatened because people had unrepentant sin. They were harboring sin. They were doing sinful things. They were not repenting. They were not bringing these things to God. And if we have sin that we're not sorry for, eventually that will lead to unbelief. Now, someone could ask, how can that lead to unbelief? When one does not seriously take the commands and promises of God, they show that they do not truly believe in Christ. Well, I know that Jesus is up there, but I don't live like he's up there. I know that there's a heaven and hell, but I'm not doing anything to alter my life to make sure I go to one and not to the other. And so what this group was doing, the people who received this letter, is they were turning back to their old religion and they were compromising their Christian faith. Now, a turning to sin and a turning to unbelief begins with the compromising of Jesus's instructions. It begins with the compromising of our morality. We're just gonna talk real for a second, right? So right now, the hot button issue in Christianity is homosexuality. Man, we need to make sure we talk against uh, homosexuality. We need to make sure that we just make sure that everyone knows that is a sin. That is something that is really, really wrong. Now, what's a little hypocritical about that is this. I know what the Bible says about homosexuality. Our church is very upfront about that. But where we've missed the mark is about 45 years ago during the sexual revelation, uh, sexual revolution, the church started turning its eyes, having blind uh, uh, blinders on about sex before marriage, premarital sex. So 95% of all people who get married have already lost their virginity. We don't care about that anymore, but we really want to make sure that two men don't have a relationship with each other. No, we don't like to talk about that because one sin makes you uncomfortable and the other one you've completely turned a blind eye to. We've done that as a whole. And so we've seen this moral degradation of our society. We've seen a moral degradation of the church because we think one sin is really, really bad and one sin is just okay. It's all right, we'll, we'll, we'll just turn a blind eye to that. And we've started compromising our faith. We've started compromising the core. I'll, guys, I'm going to be really offensive here. The Bible talks a whole lot more about sex before marriage in the Bible than it ever talks about homosexuality. But we've neglected one and we've really focused on the other. And quite frankly, one is a result of the neglect of the other. But let me move on. So what do we do? It's easy to point out the problem, right? We have politicians that are good at pointing out the problem, but don't give us any answers on how to fix it. The Bible is not like politicians. It gives us answers. So what do we do? I shouldn't have said that. First, <laughs> sorry. First, we are to encourage each other through accountability. Let me tell you about my friend, Bill Campbell, who I think is in the room. <laughs> Bill's a, a retired Marine. So whenever Bill talks to me, I listen, right? And uh, Bill shows up in the morning a lot and he's, he does counseling and stuff and he's working with a lot of different ministries. And he came into my office uh, a week or two ago and he says, hey, pastor, can I talk to you? And I was like, well, sure. He sits down on my couch and he goes, hey, about all this build out stuff. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, you're kind of being a jerk about it, stop. And I was like, you're right. Uh, he didn't say jerk, but he just said, you're, you're, you're not being very nice and it's showing and it's starting to affect a lot of people. You gotta stop that. And I wasn't offended by that because Bill loves me. And Bill's looking out for me and he's holding me accountable. As a brother in Christ, he respects me as a pastor and he respects me as a man. But he knew that it was starting to affect other people, my, my attitude, my behaviors. So he called me out on that. That's why we need the church. People need to hold you accountable. If you're not living the way you're supposed to be living, don't be offended when someone corrects you. Thank them that they love you enough to tell you so you don't continue down that path. 
You need positive relationships. I don't care what anyone says, you need the church. Whenever people say, I love Jesus and hate the church, I'm like, you don't know as much about Jesus as you think you know, because that's his bride you're talking about. You need the church. You need loving people and you need to be honest with each other. The second thing, this is gonna blow your mind, is we need to stay away from sinful things. If you have a problem with alcohol, don't, don't go to a bar. And I don't have a problem with you having a glass of wine with your dinner every once in a while. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you struggle with that addiction, don't flirt with that. Don't toy around with that. If you struggle with lust, don't buy like the new Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. That's probably not a good magazine for you to buy, right? So don't tinker around with that. Don't toy with that. And if we set up proper barriers, it prevents temptations. It shields us from sin. And I know you guys know this, but I just want to reiterate it. Sin is deceptive. We think we can dabble in it a little bit. We think we can do this every once in a while and it's okay. But when we do that, before we know it, we are drowning in our sin and we are drowning in our shame and our guilt. It quickly leads to destruction. So back to the question, right? Can we fall away? I don't know the answer to that, but I'll say this. Merely beginning the Christian walk is not sufficient to assure you've completed it. Simply starting the walk is not completing it. We must continue to be committed to Jesus until the day Jesus comes back. Hebrews said this, we have become companions with the Messiah, showing that we've been adopted into the family of God. And if we understand that God, the creator of the universe, has adopted us and called us sons and daughters, that demands a response. And the response cannot be half-hearted. The response has to say, you own me, take everything. You've bought me, take everything. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes, but we must continually go back to him. Now this will be the most offensive thing I say in this entire lesson. And if you've been raised, and I'm not trying to pick on, the, the Baptist church has done a horrible job with this. We've been sold this lie that there is a thing called the sinner's prayer, which is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. And so what a lot of churches do, and, and, and I'm not trying to be combative and I'm not trying to be negative, but it's a falsehood that we need to address. Whenever churches say, hey, if you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't raise your hand, raise your hand. And people raise their hand and they say, okay, repeat after me. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, blah, blah. And they've got this formulated kind of recited thing that they read. And then they say, all right, you're all saved. And then they don't disciple you. They don't touch you. They just let you go out to your own devices. And so people come into my office all the time and they say, hey, my son's addicted to crack cocaine. He's you know, picking up prostitutes all the time. He left his wife. He's abandoned his kids. I'm not worried about his salvation. He gave his life to Jesus when he was 12. And I'm like, you're not worried about his salvation? I'm extremely concerned about his salvation. And so whenever people say that to me, they've been sold and it's not their fault. Churches have been doing it for about 60 years where they have sold this lie that if we just recite this thing, we're good. And that is not salvation. Salvation is shown in a life that responds to the gospel of Christ through a living faith that is constantly growing until Jesus comes back. I know that offends some of you guys, but prove me wrong biblically. The two most prominent teachers in the Southern Baptist Church right now are David Platt. Most of you guys have read Radical, right? Great book. David Platt and Matt Chandler. And both of these Southern Baptist men who went to Southern Baptist seminaries have completely refuted the sinner's prayer and said it is completely non-biblical and bogus, right? And they've received hate mail like crazy because quite frankly, guys, it's a lot easier to say, I'm a Christian than it is to go out and live like it every single day. That's as preachy as I'll get. <laughs> Last part. I hope you guys come back next week, by the way. 
Um, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it really all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? And who was provoked for 40 years? And, he, and who provoked God for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who did he swear to that they would not enter into his rest if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter into his rest because of unbelief. Now look, if someone quotes the same thing twice, they must be really trying to get a point across. The author quotes Psalm 95 two times. If you go back and look, two times in the same chapter. And what that is showing is he wanted to reemphasize that the Jews' rebellion after their deliverance from Egypt, um, because of their rebellion, they were forced to wander around the desert for 40 years. You should Google this if you get an opportunity. If you look, here's, here's Egypt, here's Israel, right? And it's, if you were to like Google map it, if you were driving it, it's a pretty straight shot. Just go, uh, go, go northeast and you end up in the promised land, Israel, right? If you look at the path of the Jews after Egypt, they went south, they did a couple of crazy eights, and then they went up north, right? The worst path ever to get to the promised land. And the reason why they had to wander like that is God was giving them an opportunity to change their attitude for 40 years, but they rebelled against him. And so the author of Hebrews asks a couple of questions. He doesn't give us time to answer. He answers them himself, but he asks these questions. First is, who heard the word of God and rebelled? Who heard God and rebelled? It was all the Jews that came out of Egypt, all of them. All the people who were delivered from slavery and saw these miraculous signs. And what's crazy is if you go back and read about the Jews that came out of Egypt, they saw manna fall from heaven. When they were hungry, God literally dropped food out of the sky at night, they followed a pillar of fire. During the day, they followed a pillar of smoke. They saw the Ten Commandments. They saw Moses come down and his skin was a different color because God's Holy Spirit had shone all over him. They saw all these miraculous things and they still didn't believe in God. So whenever people say, if I could just see God, I'd believe, not true. Some people, Jesus could walk in the door right now, high five everyone in this congregation. Some of us would still say, eh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not persuaded. I'm not convinced because that's our rebellious nature. And because of the Jews' unrepentant heart, they fell, not fell spiritually. They dropped dead in the desert. The first generation that came out of Egypt, none of them made it to Israel. It was their children. God made a promise and he fulfilled that to their children, not to them. But that generation never received a reward. And again, these are people that saw the Red Sea split, food fall from heaven. These are people that saw crazy, miraculous things. One time Moses hit a rock and water poured out of a rock. I mean, like, that's crazy stuff. And they still didn't follow God. And so what we see is this, man, I hope this isn't too offensive, is that privileged people sometimes fall miserably into sin. And this story screams at North American Christians, screams at us. Look at the luxuries you have. Look at the freedom you have. Look at the accessibility to the Bible you have. Look at all these things. And we've taken it for granted. And we've become a nation, and I'm not trying to make fun of you, and I'm not trying to come down on you, but we've become a people who are paralyzed with fear and anxiety and depression. And I have struggled with those things. But you know what I learned a couple of years ago? And I'm not saying that I don't sometimes have struggles with depression or anxiety or fear. 
I learned a couple of years ago that God did not engineer me to be afraid. He did not engineer me to be depressed. And I believe in counseling and I, I'm not anti-medicine or any of those things. But I wonder sometimes, are we restless? These Jews never received their rest because they had a disconnect from God. Have we become a restless people because we're disconnected from the Prince of Peace? Let that soak in. Have we become an unpeaceful, restless, restless generation because we're not connected to the Prince of Peace? So he goes on to talk about this. Who was offered this rest? Well, everybody. Everybody who was set free from Egypt was offered rest. Everyone who was liberated from God was offered rest. All the Jews were offered the promised land. But in their rebellion, they negated the oath of God. And their failure to receive the promise of God and his rest was due to their unbelief. Listen, did they believe God existed? Yes. Whenever people tell me that as long as you believe in God, you're saved, not true. James says the devils in hell believe in Jesus and they know he's Lord over everything. You're not going to be like shooting pool with Satan's imps in heaven. It's the best I could come up with spur of the moment. But... <laughs> That's not how it's going to work. A simple belief that God is up there is not salvation. It's living in a manner that knows that he's the king of kings. To simply know that he's up there. And so, yes, they knew he was there, but they did not believe that God would keep his word. And there's this link between disobedience and disbelief. The disobedience to God's word is a visible sign that we do not fully believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Man, this is offensive. Read 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It gives you a list of all the people who continually do these sins. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we truly believe that Jesus was going to do everything he said he was going to do, we would stop doing these things. Because what we believe about God will lead us to moral change, either good or bad. If I believe that God hates sex outside of marriage, I'm going to stop doing that if I believe everything he says is going to come to pass. If I don't, then I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. If I believe that God hates drunkenness, I'm going to stop getting wasted. But if I don't believe that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, I'll keep doing what I want to do. And if we only demonstrate disobedience, it shows that I don't really believe in you. What we have become... A man named Craig Groeschel wrote a really good book on this idea. What a lot of Christians have become in North America is we have become what's called the Christian atheists. Now, what a Christian atheist is, is this. It's someone that believes that Jesus, the son of God exists, but does not live like it. I believe you're up there. I believe it. I believe you're all powerful. You know everything. You're all places. You created everything. You died on the cross. I believe in all that, but I don't live like it. It's called the Christian atheist. And this is not what we want to be. But unfortunately, right now, about 70% of North America claims to be Christians. So if 70% of North America claims to be Christians, does our media, is our media 70% in congruency with Christ? Are our politics 70% in congruency with Christ? <laughs> that was like lob lobbing you a softball. Um, it, it, when you watch TV or when you listen to the radio or 70% of the TV shows and the music you listen to, do they conform to the ways of Christ? Well, obviously, we've become a nation of Christian atheists. We believe he's up there, but we just don't live like it. Now, on the flip side of that, let me show you a couple of things, and this is not exhaustive. This is not everything. 
But if one calls themselves a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, a Christian, here's some core things that every Christian should be known for. The first is this. We must believe that Jesus Christ has the power to transform. I'm afraid that we've become a Christian culture that doesn't believe that Jesus delivers anymore, that Jesus doesn't transform the mind and the heart and therefore the actions of the individual. Well, Corey, I'm a sinner. You know, we're all sinners, right? So I look at porn a lot, but man, we're all sinners, right? You've just denied. You have an appearance of godliness, but you've denied the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit can change your thoughts. The Bible even says, capture your thoughts. The Holy Spirit, it says in Romans, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and not conform to the ways of the world. Jesus Christ still changes people. When we give our life wholeheartedly to him, we talked about it at baptism, when we read the scripture from Colossians that you were dead and now you're raised to life and you no longer have the identity you used to have, we need to quit making excuses sometimes and we just need to depend on the Holy Spirit because Jesus still changes people's hearts and his minds and their minds and ultimately their actions and their lives. True Christians follow the ways of Jesus, not the ways of culture and man. Just because sexuality in North America has changed, Jesus Christ has never changed. His institutions and the way he has created things and the order and the design that he has made has never changed. Just because politics have changed, the government of, of, of God, the kingdom of God, does not conform to the politics of this world. It does not conform to the culture of this world. It does not conform to the media of this world. Jesus Christ is forever constant. And we are to follow the ways of Christ not to follow the ways of mankind. A true Christian enjoys the grace of God, but does not abuse the grace of God. I love what Paul said. Should we sin so grace can abound? Absolutely not, Paul says. Absolutely not. Do I look at porn knowing that God's going to forgive me later? Absolutely not. Do I cheat on my taxes because I know that I, you know, maybe I can give a little bit more to the church? Absolutely not. Do I bend the rules and hope that God's going to forgive me later? Absolutely not. Now, as a Christian, when we make mistakes because of the cross, we can go to him and if we're genuine, God, I've done this and I don't want to do it anymore and forgive me. He is quick to forgive and he's quick to show grace and mercy. We enjoy that grace, but we do not abuse that grace. The true Christian does not abuse it. This is one where I struggle. We see the goodness even in the most difficult times. Let me give you some encouragement. I'm not trying to make all this political, guys, because I know that, I don't know, I know we put more hope in that than we do in Jesus sometimes, and I don't want to touch that nerve right now. Well, maybe I do, but um, <laughs> coming up this year, I, I don't think I've talked to one person yet who's just like, man, I'm loving the, the direction that politics have taken in North America. I don't think I've talked to that person yet. Maybe you're one of those, and you're very optimistic. But anyways, <laughs> what we do is though we see things falling apart, Though economies may crash, though world systems may, may teeter on the, on the brink of, of recession and depression, whether politicians are crooked, whatever the case may be. Let's say, let's go to an extreme. Let's say the government starts shutting down churches and it starts oppressing, maybe even violently, the Christian movement. If you go back in history, the most rapid the church has ever grown was in the Roman Empire when they were at the peak of throwing Christians in the Colosseum and having them killed by gladiators and eaten alive by lions. They say in that time in Rome, 10% of Rome 
were followers of Jesus. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but when they worshiped so many different gods, for 10% of Rome to be focused on one deity was astronomically large. They said there were over 60,000 followers of Jesus in Rome during its heaviest persecution. Justin the Martyr in the second century, I've quoted this before, said, the more you try to mow us down, the more we will grow. The blood of Christians is seed, is what he said. Even in the most difficult times. Do you know where Christianity is flourishing the most right now in the world? Communist China. North America, it is shrinking. Where it's illegal to walk around with the Bible, Christianity is growing like crazy. Even in the most difficult times, we must see the goodness of God. We must see that God is going to grow. And I'll just tell you, when America goes through its roughest, you're really gonna see a turning to the Lord. You're gonna see a lot of people come to faith. The the true Christian is not paralyzed by fear and anxiety. There was a huge turning point in my spirit when I read the scripture that said, fear is not a spirit given to us by God. It identifies fear as a spirit and it identifies fear as a spirit that's not good. Now that doesn't mean if you're afraid of snakes, you're going to hell, right? Because I would go to hell. So um, (laughs) it doesn't mean that. What it means though is this, regardless of what goes on in the world, you are not designed by God to be afraid. Jesus even said, don't be afraid of those that can take your life. Only be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. Don't be afraid of all those outside governments. Don't be afraid of corrupt kingdoms. Don't be afraid of economics. Don't be afraid of of institutions and corporations. Don't be afraid of them. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And Jesus Christ even said, don't be afraid of the world. Take heart. I've already overcome the world. He's already won, and we are not to be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Lastly, the true Christian, the true Christian does good works, not because they're trying to achieve salvation, but because they've been saved, they know their only response is to do good things and give God glory. We don't do good things to achieve salvation. We do good things because we've been saved. We do good things because the grace of God has been shown to us. We're not kind to our neighbor because we have to be. We're kind to our neighbor as a response that God has been kind to us. We help out the poor and the homeless, not because we're obligated, but because the Lord has saved us and pulled us out of pits. Therefore, as a way to show honor to him and to bring glory to him, we help his creation. We help those around us. We do good things. Just like James said, You can tell me that you've been saved. I'm going to show you I've been saved. Listen, when we understand what that cross represents, when we understand the depths and the levels that God has gone to for us, when we understand that, I'm flabbergasted that more Christians are not, that they're they're not going out and doing more. When we understand what God has done for us, when we understand grace, when we understand mercy, the only response is to do good things for the people around us. And all the credit and all the honor is not for us. It gets deflected and goes right up to God. Listen, I love you guys. And the point of this is not to beat you over the head. It's not to make you feel guilty. If the Lord convicts you, that's not me, it's his word. But if you're not a believer in here, I wanna tell you, Christians have not always done well at this. And if you're not a believer in here, I wanna tell you genuinely, we are sorry. I also want to tell you, do not judge Jesus based on me. 
Judge Jesus based on his word, based on this. Always judge a religion, not based on its followers, but by its leader. And if you do that, Jesus never comes up short. But believers in this room, we must do this better. We must do this better. Jesus can transform us. We need to follow his commands. We need to not abuse his grace. We need to be positive more than negative. We don't need to be paralyzed by fear. And we need to do good works for the community around us. If we're not doing those things, there might be a disconnect between us and the Lord. Okay? Can I pray for you? You guys are welcome to pray for me. I need to work on these things just as much, if not more, than you guys. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's communion on the right and left, guys. That communion represents the body and blood of Jesus. It's a reminder that God has gone to unbelievable lengths. It's a reminder that God did do a work for us, and it was the work that bought our salvation. And when we understand how serious that is, if we've repented for our sins, we're welcome to partake in communion with God, to remember what he did for us. Now, if you need prayer for anything, there's a prayer team up here to my left, your right. If you need prayer for anything, if someone's sick or if you need help or if you're struggling with something, come up here and let them pray for you. Also, if you have any questions, if you have any questions, we can do our best to help you answer those questions. If you're not a believer in here, all I ask of you is this. If you're here, you're here because you're, there's a reason why you're here. And if you're looking for the truth, if you're not a believer, the only thing I ask of you is this. Genuinely ask God to start showing himself to you. Genuinely ask God, God, if you're up there, please show me something. Touch my heart, work on me. And I give you my word, he will, he will. Because Jesus said, if you seek, you'll find. Father, Lord, we love you. God, forgive us if we have not if we have not responded to your word the way we should. Forgive us, God, if we haven't responded to the cross the way we should. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Help us, Lord, to be good ambassadors for you, good examples of you, God. We love you and we thank you, Lord. Be with my brothers and sisters as we, as we leave this place. And God, we just pray that our lives give you honor and give you glory, Lord. We pray all this in the only name that saves, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. I love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself to communion.